Welcome everybody to Legal Tech Week for July 24th, 2020. I am Bob Ambrogi. I write the Law Sites blog, host the Law Next podcast, and uh, do various other things, I think. Uh, and we've got a little bit smaller panel this week, um, but uh, Caroline Hill is off for celebrating her birthday, and uh, Victor Lee wasn't able to, I think he's taking some time off from work, so... Who we do have this week is Molly McDonough. Molly, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Molly McDonough. I'm a media strategist and legal affairs journalist based in the Chicago area. And Nikki Black. Um, I am you're just Black. waving to us. You're not going to talk this week? <laughs> All right. That'll be the day. Um, <laughs> my name is Nikki Black. I am um, an attorney and a legal technology evangelist with my case, and I uh, i like to say I exist where law and technology intersect, and I love to write and speak about tech. Um, I have legal tech columns on ABA Journal, uh, Above the Law, I write for the Daily Record, I also write for the My Case blog and other outlets. And Victoria Hudgens. Hi, everybody. My name is Victoria Hudgens. I'm a reporter for Legal Tech News, where I cover cybersecurity and the intersection of technology and the law. Joe Patrice. Hey, Joe Patrice, above the law. I'm uh, in a different room, so you don't get to see my yellow dinosaur that people have commented on uh, this week because uh, they're drilling a giant hole in my front yard. So that's exciting. <laughs> and and that is for what? We don't we, we don't want to know, right? Wait, yeah, wait, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> the the authorities have no need to know. No. Uh, <laughs> Gonna be it's all it is a kind of techie. It's gonna be a geothermal heating and cooling system. So you know, it's gonna be nice. super. Uh, and Zach Warren and his little friend. Yeah, I decided to take over the yellow dinosaur <laughs> that happened to be within arm's reach of me. Um, actually, completely coincidentally. Hey, everybody! I'm Zach Warren, <laughs> editor in chief of Legal Tech News, part of ALM. Um, I work with Victoria, and we are part of the ALM network, so my stuff is also on the American Lawyer, Corporate Council, et cetera. And I will put this stuffed animal down. All right. Uh, where should we start this week? Um, I kind of feel like starting with this this news of the new Thomson Reuters news service, which I, I wrote about, I and I just... It was once again, uh, some of these stories just strike me as strange. Not so much the, the news isn't strange, but the way they come about is strange because, uh, uh, I mean, what, what the news was, was that was the Thomson Reuters introduced a, a new uh, legal news service this week that they're calling Westlaw Today. But they did it in almost in, in stealth mode, which is just so strange for, you know, I know a lot of folks on this panel know that usually when West rolls something out, you know, they roll it out. I mean, you know, in the old days, even they would fly us all out to Egan or something just just to just to see it and get a preview. And this just kind of happened with 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 no announcement whatsoever. And I, I'd been kind of hearing rumors for a while that they were possibly starting something to compete with Law 360 from, from LexisNexis. And uh, um, they've been advertising a whole bunch of editorial job openings. Uh, and I kind of asked a bunch, I asked several Thomson Reuters executives over the last week about it and got lots of no answers or, or don't ask me, ask somebody else. And, uh, and then like, finally, like earlier this week, I got a call from a, one of their PR people who said, well, oh, let me look into it. I don't know anything about this, which you know is bullshit. Uh, <laughs> and, 
And then after my call, then they launched this thing. <laughs> and then they call me and say, yeah, by the way, we've just launched this thing. That must be what you're asking about. Um, so I don't know. Uh, but it's interesting. Uh, and uh, I, I think there's, I do think there's still more to come here. I don't know. Zach, you're, you're out there in their neck of the woods. Any, uh, have you been like uh, sneaking around their headquarters? Any? <laughs> I, I've not been sneaking around their headquarters, <laughs> no. Um, with my LTN hat on, I, I agree with you that I think that there is more to come because especially the features that you detailed in your piece seem to be pretty commiserate with what they had previously. It didn't seem like they were promising upgrades, but there wasn't too much tangible. It seems like they're needs to be something greater there, which might be why they had the stealth release, just looking to build up a little bit of an audience and a little bit of awareness before something larger. Um, taking off the LTN hat, um, you may notice that on the website, they had a quote from uh, Lee Jones, who until a couple weeks ago was the editor-in-chief of ALMslaw.com. Uh, she is also not the only person I know that has been recently hired by Thomson Reuters. Um, I don't want to go further down that path because anything would be speculation, but uh, that says something. You know, I did not even notice that. I noticed a quote from Lee Jones and I said, oh, yeah, Lee Jones, I know her. But I didn't actually, but I didn't make that quote. Yeah. I know the name, but I didn't associate her with Law.com, but yeah. Inter that's that's interesting. I mean, I, I've talked to some other people who have I know have applied for jobs there, and then they I get what that they all tell me that they had to sign NDAs or something, and so once they've applied, they're they can't they can't. So interesting. Well, if nothing else. At least I think it's at least there's going to be another outlet to cover the legal industry since some of the more traditional ones, you know, the newspapers and whatnot, had struggled. So at least we're going to have some other outlets covering it now since all these niche publications and all different areas are having a hard time. So I think from a, the perspective of the viewer or the reader, <laughs> seems great to me. In the yeah, no, I can't, I can't complain about another um, uh, news service uh, launching in some way. Um, I am, I'm curious how this will uh, formulate, especially, I mean, Thomson Reuters has been in, in news, for many, many years, and even when it was Thompson, oh, they own newspapers. I worked for Thompson Chains before. Uh, so it's it's interesting to see kind of how they've uh, morphed and what they're going to do differently from Reuters and how they're going to use this as a as a news service for, for just legal and what they're going to focus on, which we don't know, although we've all seen the, the, um, the positions and know about people um, applying. Yeah. I, you know, I, I agree with you, Nikki and, and Molly, great to have another news service, but it's going to be another news service behind a firewall. I mean, it's going to, it, it, right, as of right now, it's available only to Westlaw subscribers. Maybe they'll extend it beyond that, maybe make it something like Law 360, but it's still, I'm sure, going to be just, just, to, just to fund all this talent that they're hiring. I'm sure it's going to continue to be a, a, a paid and probably a pricey paid subscription. Uh, in order to get access to it, you know, well, who Law 360 have a, a is paywall. a really yes, we know. But <laughs> would, Law 360 has a really pricey paywall too. Yeah, um, no, and, I, yeah, I, I, and they only have a very small fraction of their content that's available without a paywall. Um, right. And they're so expensive. Like I, you know, as a small business, I was trying to get quotes 
um, just as an individual, and it's just prohibitively too expensive for me to to um, subscribe to it right now. Yeah, and it's too bad because they do a really good job. They've got some good uh, reporters. They've got extensive. They've got real sort of like boots on the ground coverage in a, in a lot of courts and a lot of cities, and uh, doing some good stuff. Um, what this else? This is why Someone I tell everybody to though, Joe, to to go to above the law because you're you don't have a paywall. <laughs> Right. I, I, we, we read Law 360, um, so you don't have to, kind of. But no, we, we view our business model as being very supportive of the paywall services in that we're kind of like clownfish around the big animal, that we read them, we make a few jokes, a spoonful of sugar, those stories, and then hopefully drive people back and be willing to brave the paywall to read the full story. That's our life mission. I will forever now see you as a clownfish every time I talk to you. Whatever a clownfish. I, you you is. didn't. I, 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 I've been using this analogy for a while. So, so my my um, the way I used to get all of this news years and years ago was subscribing through Thomson through Thomson Reuters through Westlaw and doing news searches and setting up news alerts, and then I got everybody. So yeah. I ha I haven't seen a good service like that. Um, pop up yet yeah yeah um so let's see who wants to go next volunteers <laughs> molly you had a bunch well, of I stuff think, you wanna, or go ahead joe well, go ahead I can, joe, joe started start. let, let joe well, go. okay go ahead well i i, I think they're all I, I think we have a lot of semi-related stories yeah today. we do um we, do. Uh, we have a lot of stories that all deal in some way with the ways in which moving courts processes online raises issues. I mean, I think a lot of us knew that there are reasons why we can't wait forever to bring back courts and that some sort of a virtual solution was necessary. Um, among the many reasons the constitution says you have to get a speedy trial. Uh, but there were reasons we had to move online. But as we've done that, a lot of people have started raising concerns. Uh, and among them are, I mean, we had the, uh, I think we we may have even discussed this one before, but there are some concerns about um, grand jury testimony being kind of done by Wi-Fi. But now we also have a discussion, and I think maybe before we talk about my funny story, we should go to the story about some of the states that, uh, A, the states that have done logged a bunch of uh, hours already and what they've dealt with, and B, the uh, group that is pointing to some of the issues that are coming up with this. So... One of one or the other of those, I think, should probably go first. Yeah, and then so I, funny. Yeah, story. I was just going to say that I, there's not too much to say about the, the first one I said, which is the, what the first one I pitched out, which was the five hundred five hundred thousand hours for Michigan courts on Zoom. Uh, it's it's just this enormous amount of time for uh, judges and uh, litigants and um, anyone coming before the court. Uh, to be on video conferencing. And I think that like segues into the other like four stories that you guys all raised about ethics and procedure and due process uh, that are all popping up and really important concerns. Yeah. I mean, so there, I mean, one of the, one of those things that was, was this report um, I did write about it on my blog uh, from this organization called stop, which stands for surveillance technology oversight project. Um, and, you know, and I, I think I thought it was interesting just because I think in some ways we, we are all so uh, in awe of this shiny new object of online courts in a lot of ways. And, and 
you know, and I, I think a lot of people aren't stopping to really think about uh, some of the security concerns and privacy concerns and due process concerns that that these courts can raise. I, I, I mean, I will say, I, I know that uh, Richard Siskind in his book on online courts actually has a whole big part of it about all the potential downsides uh, of online courts. And he does talk through a lot of these issues. Um, but, you know, there, this this one just raised a, a, just a number of uh, interesting things. You know, so, some of it is just access, the, the fact that there are a lot of people who just don't have great internet access or aren't comfortable with this technology uh, and, and who can be disadvantaged by being either a litigant or a, or a witness uh, trying to testify uh, uh, or uh, otherwise participate in a hearing online. Um, I, you know, I thought some of the points that this report raised around uh, lawyer-client communications were interesting. A lot of uh, courts are now that are using Zoom are using Zoom breakout rooms as uh, uh, ways for attorneys to consult privately with their clients. Uh, this report points out that uh, you know you you may not know exactly what's happening with that breakout room because the the, the host who sets up the Zoom meeting is the one who controls that breakout room. Uh, and, uh, you know, are they secretly recording you? Are they somehow making a record of this? Uh, you as a lawyer certainly has, has, should, uh, you know, exercise some due diligence around the security of these things before you meet with your client, which then goes back to another favorite topic of mine, which is the whole duty of technology competence and the competence of lawyers to do with that stuff. But, uh, I mean, you, you can read the full report on my blog, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it certainly raises a, a number of issues. And, uh, and, and Joe, I know you had kind of a more specific example of, of one of those on, on your blog this week. Yeah, no, definitely. I, but before I get to that, I, I will say of a lot of that report, when I read it, I thought a lot of the issues that they raise are important and obviously worth considering. But it really hit me what I took away from it was that there seems to be something of a blind spot that the whole profession has for the ways in which the court system is already inaccessible, right? Like people were saying like, oh, the digital divide, they may not be able to have this. And I was like, do you think it works right now for somebody who's working a job to leave their job and come down to a court and go through a weird metal detector and screening process? Like the, our courts are designed to be off-putting to people who aren't, uh, in the club, basically, already. Uh, pro se litigants talk about this all the time. And obviously there are litigants that I call pro-sane, but most, pro, but but the less insane uh, litigants have this problem all the time. And it's, it's interesting how we kind of close down that obviously being in person is totally fine. It's just when we move online that there's all these blockades and seems off-putting to the public. But whatever. Uh, that was that was my takeaway from it. I don't know if anybody else thought something similar. What uh, we wrote about this week, though, was an issue that is very much a uh, concern with how one of these digital meetings gets conducted. And in Kentucky, a judge used the mute button, which I'm sure at some point Bob will use on any one of us, but uh, <laughs> use the, because the host can use the mute button to stop people from talking. And the judge did not want to hear anything from the defense attorney and kept using it for minutes on end. And uh, the question is, uh, the, the, the defense attorney has now filed to complain about this uh, and get the judge recused from the case. Uh, but 
to what extent, though, I'm taking a bit of a devil's advocate side, this story seems pretty egregious, but taking a bit of a devil's advocate side, you do have to manage these conversations. And if you have two very zealously advocating parties, they will yell at each other. And in person, you can kind of bark over that. But in tech, it's hard. And so where is that finding that line between what is good management by use of the technology and what is prejudicing the client by shutting up their advocate is something that we're going to have to spend some time working out while we're doing this. Well, the Supreme Court figured it out with time. So you, yeah. you have your time allotment. So you have your turn. You have your, you know, I, I think it's possible. I, I, I agree that, that um, this one, you did a nice job with this one pointing out all the ways that this one, <laughs> this seems not quite right. Um, but, you know, but you have to be able to take your turn, like even in this, in, in this format, when we all try to defer, it's everybody wants to jump in at a certain point, you have to moderate. And I did think that one of the complaints that people raised, that some of the experts in the original write-up of this story, uh, which was in the uh, local newspaper in Louisville, uh, one of the concerns that was raised by some of the folks that they quoted was that the, unlike the Supreme Court, where you have an oral argument that's you go your 10 minutes, then they go their 10 minutes, whatever, uh, in a hearing that's not a motion, like a oral argument on a motion, you know, you have to lodge your objections to what the other side's saying. You have to be able to do that in real time. And so that's why you can't necessarily go on time limits. That said, I I thought they were kind of eliding the fact that this was a motion in front of a judge. As long as there's no jury, I don't, I don't know as though I worry that a, a judge can hear whatever they want and then mentally process backwards. They don't need the objections in real time. But, but, that's, but that's true. I think anything in front of a judge, you can have time limits that cover it. But once we start having uh, individuals involved, like juries involved and stuff, how do you keep, uh, keep this managed? I, I mean, I thought it was inexcusable that a, that a judge would, would do that, even in a, even in a hearing. Uh, I, I mean, it, it's one thing for a judge to tell somebody to be quiet and tell somebody I'm going to hold you in contempt if you don't be quiet. But, but to not even listen to them and hear what they're saying, uh, I, I just, I mean, that, that's something that would never happen in an actual physical courtroom. Uh, and I, I just thought it was inexcusable. I, I was shocked. What I think is interesting, and we've talked about the lack of professionalism over video calls the past couple of weeks or so, it's been mostly from the attorney standpoint, but I think you're getting a little bit of it from the judge standpoint as well. I think there's still a mental switch that a lot of people haven't necessarily flipped yet of these are business calls, this is a professional setting, we can't necessarily function the same way that we would if we're on a Zoom call with friends on Thursday night or something like that. You need to completely agree to a different standard. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually thinking of grabbing a beer. Um, yeah, I view this as like legal that. tech happy hour. So I, 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 I <laughs> I'm with you on that one. But no, I, I mean, it's supposed to be functioning as a court proceeding. And every party involved, including the judge, I would think should be going that way. Right. Well, as a former public defender, I'm going to have to take some issue with something you said, Bob, that the judge has to listen to you. I kind of feel like the judge rarely listened to me when I was a public defender. Only certain judges, I won't name any, but there were times when they just wouldn't let you talk. Um, but uh, 
And I actually had one judge threaten to hold me in contempt because he said I rolled my eyes every time he set bail. And I, for about 10 minutes, I didn't blink. I think he said he was going to throw me in jail and I didn't blink for 10 minutes. I think, I don't think I've ever not blinked that long in my life. But um, with the Zoom stories though, I don't know if I brought this up last week or not. I, I don't think I did. I wrote about um from my Daily Record article that I submitted last week. Uh, actually, it might've been yesterday. Hard to recall these days. But um. <laughs> I'm just drinking water over here, but hey. Um, but there was a case out of the um, Southern District of New York where um, the it was a, a about during depositions with Zoom calls, and the judge had to issue an order saying that um, the opposing what the plaintiff's counsel wanted was to be able to record the screen of the deponent while the Zoom call was going on and the hearing the deposition was being conducted to um, prevent any coaching. And that type of thing and the judge said that was just unduly um, intrusive and that she wasn't going to require that but she did set some rules you know in, in terms of what she was ordering them to comply with and that you're not supposed to coach the witness and we all know this and but it was interesting and i i'll link to that here but it was an interesting um issue i mean it's, there's just all these issues that are coming up that occur in a remote setting where you would be right next to the person and you could tell if they were coaching them versus in a remote setting, they could be writing notes and handing them over to their client. And you'd never know. So that it is really incredible. All these different issues that are popping up that you just don't realize would be an issue till you encounter them in this virtual hearing setting. Right. I thought it was interesting. Molly, one of the stories that you mentioned, I, I forget whether you already talked about this. I don't think you did, which was just that how many hours are getting logged in zoom hearings right now. Yeah, no, I, I kind of just brushed through it because, it, you know, it's just it's just a number out there, but it's an it's an impressive number, you know, and Michigan was already moving in this direction. Uh, so but, you know, they obviously had to move much more quickly than than they were anticipating, but they were, you know, they'd already been, you know, dealing with big you know, remote areas and trying to, you know, uh, be able to serve some of that, uh, some of those spaces that are so far flung um, in in. Michigan, my son's up in the Upper Peninsula today, and I feel like he's in another country at this point. Um, and with no so do people from Michigan, <laughs> right? Right, right. Um, and you know, it's it's really hard to get to. You know, he had to get to the Upper Peninsula through Wisconsin. So you know, um, otherwise, you know, it's maybe best way plane or boat. So uh, yeah, so I, you know, it just seems like an enormous a number of hours, but, you know, they've been able to keep their courts functioning, uh, which a lot of people, a lot of states haven't been able to do. Yep. Um, all right. Who else? Uh, Victoria, did you have a story this week? I, I don't think you sent around anything by email in advance, so I wasn't sure what you had. When I saw the um, uh, stories that you guys were going to bring up today, I did kind of see like in New Jersey, um, one of our um, ALM publications, sibling publications, um, they posted about a real that there's a lot of pushback from the states adopting kind of like a hybrid approach and like what you guys were mentioning about the problems that can occur when you have jurors that may be aren't as tech savvy or don't have access to technology. And there's a lot of pushback, it's pushback from the Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, um, I think also public defenders. And it's kind of interesting how states will kind of try to handle this situation. Will they bring in people? Will they just 
continue as life as normal and just have everyone come back in to the courtroom or like what New Jersey is trying to do, a hybrid mix of jury trials. Um, I think um, jury selection will be remote will be remote, and then the voir dire uh, process, hopefully I pronounced that uh, phrase correctly, would be um, in person. And you're hearing a lot of pushback from it. So it'd be interesting to see like what will courts in the United States do. They can't necessarily just say, hey, I'm just not going to, we're just not going to have any um, court proceedings during this time. You have to do something. And with limited kind of budgets on, you can't necessarily redesign the courtrooms and provide like um, specific type of airflow. So it would definitely be interesting to see how that kind of plays out with these states and how much will kind of like the dockets be a little bit at a standstill. We have to balance um, um balance health with people's litigation needs. Right. Something I thought was interesting. Yeah. Any thoughts uh, on that? Or? It, no, it's just, oh, go ahead. I just think that the public defenders lost their case. It actually did. We were talking last week about how I'd rather they might be bringing a case. They brought the case and it was dismissed. I'm not sure if they're appealing the New York City public defenders. Uh, they wanted to try and avoid in, uh, in you know person-to-person -person court and they wanted more virtual hearings but so far they've been unsuccessful in that endeavor so i just want to throw yeah, that so that i think i i really if you if you have a chance to listen to the um some of the webinars from the national center for state courts and the conference of chief justices the the um, um it's been really interesting to see what courts are doing to address the um, flow and capacity and like even you know using um, empty buildings down the street, um, you know putting juries in one room and um, you know courts in the court process in another, and you know setting up all these different uh, flows and um, keeping everybody else at home as much as possible. Um, so it's it's really everybody is doing something a little different, um, and but it's it's great to see all the sharing to see what's happening and seeing what's working. Yeah, I think I've read coverage about that. Um, sorry about that, Zach. But I think um, Ross Todd, one of my colleagues at ALM, he wrote about that. And he mentioned, one of the judges mentioned, I believe she was in Texas, they were thinking about using the quad that's nearby the courthouse. But they said, but she said, we have to wait until it's not an ungodly, like it's not so hot as it is in Texas to go outside and have proceedings. So it does seem like they're trying to be more creative and just kind of like, how can they still... No one said like their caseload is at 100%, but just still keep like, um, not have like a bottleneck where you just can't, um, COVID-19 stops you from having any type of jury trials. But I think the judges there, they were just pretty much like, you have to work with us. Things won't be 100%, but we have to make something work. Yeah. Yeah. They were, yeah. so some of them were doing like shuttle services, but then they, they can't put the bus at full capacity either. Yeah. <laughs> so they have to run more buses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If I have a devil's advocate for all this, it, there's a lot of cool things that individual judges and even individual courts are doing, but it does worry me that there is not coordination on a wider level than that. The fact that individual judges are kind of having to jury rig these systems to make whatever they can work for their own courtrooms, it doesn't provide the standardization that I think may be necessary for justice to really be achieved in many cases. Um, so it's cool what people are doing. I just wish that there was some system that it could be adopted on a wider scale. So I, I will say that, that that's what the National Center for State Courts is doing. So they're 
in the process, they're producing guidelines. And I, and I, I think this was a while back, but they're, I mean, they're very quickly producing guidelines for chatbots, for um, um, managing the re-entry process. They've had like three uh, programs in a row, and then they publish all their documentation um, and recommendations for safe reopening. Um, so, but that's the only place I've seen it um, really in a coordinated way. But it is the kind of chief justices all working together um, to try to come up with a system um, as as much as you can with a, such a localized process. Yeah, and that goes to that, that. That was actually one of the issues that was addressed in that stop report we were talking about earlier. I don't think I wrote about that issue on my blog post about it, but that was something that they talked about was the need for coming out with some, you know, cross jurisdictional standards for basically for records for for records format and records retention. Uh, you know, viewing it as a security issue, but also an access issue uh, because you know we're, this is going to be one of those. This is like you know. BY, bring your own device to court now. And, and so we're going to have all these court hearings being recorded or not recorded in all these different formats. And for members of the public who want to get access to this stuff, uh, it's going to be confusing, if not impossible. Um, I know that one of, I, I think I, almost every week I talk about uh, Judge Schlegel down in Louisiana because he's always doing so many interesting things. But I know he's um, about to introduce this, uh, I think maybe he's actually already using it, uh, a, 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 a sort of a real-time Slack channel for the cases. So basically, when a when a when a matter gets gets come, comes in, comes before him, he ha he tells the lawyer to to join his Slack channel, and, and they have sort of real-time communications about it. I mean, instead of like filing a motion, basically the lawyer like goes onto the Slack channel and says, you know, judge, I'm need you to do this or something and then the other party can respond right there and the judge can then you know issue his ruling on the slack channel or you know yeah. uh, i may be i may it just be feel a little bit that out feels of so old west right <laughs> like that feels like you just rolled into judge judge bean's office and told him we, well, we need to go down and get these cattle rustlers <laughs> <laughs> Those outdoor hearings brought me to like more medieval times. The, the concept of that reminded me for some reason of Monty Python when they're trying to decide if it's He's a, a witch. witch. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, are we all just going to like regress for some reason because of these remote hearings? I don't know. I will say there, there's a conversation going on in the chat that I think people are seeing half of because I think they're only seeing Molly's responses and not the original questions. But, uh, but there is a, a federalism issue here where we need unified responses. And unfortunately, in a lot of these jurisdictions, they, you know, the state legislature runs it in one jurisdiction, the Supreme Court of the state runs it in another, and there's not really an easy way to smooth out those edges. Uh, in, you know, I mean, those of you who've done lobbying work or whatever know that like in the, in the, world where everything's run by legislatures, Alec can just come in and dictate what all the laws are in all the states, but you can't necessarily do that. Right. Yes, that was one of the things that when what you wrote about, Bob, that gave me pause with that report was I, I, I think a lot, they made all very good points, but I actually am a little concerned about adding too much love, uh, bureaucracy to this period of um, innovation right now. You know, I, I feel like we're making so much progress, so much progress. I like the guidelines and the and the collaboration, uh, but I worry about somebody coming in, an organ entity coming in and saying, that's it, we're gonna, this is the way we're gonna do it. This is the way we're gonna do it forever. And, you know, no matter who it serves. 
that's yeah. what worries me too ultimately um and i think having the guidelines are great um but ultimately if there is progress i it's just the tech person in me that i want the most innovative to stand out and get a serious look and if you're getting that many people in a room it worries me that it would go to the lowest common denominator of what would be adopted um so it, it's that's just me being a tech person and always wanting to <laughs> try and push the limit though i do realize that yeah i mean it's it's an it's an, for me it's interesting because in my i do lobby in my day job and I, I and i am often lobbying around issues regarding access to government information uh and you know uh one of the concerns that I'm, even though I'm a techie, you know, in, in, in terms of the legal world, often I'm arguing against tech solutions in terms of access to government information because there is just still this issue of the fact that there are large portions of the population who just do not have good access to uh, the online world. It's getting, it's getting better and better and better. Uh, but there's, there are, even in Massachusetts where I am, there are huge areas of Western Massachusetts that where there's just no broadband access. You can't get it. It's just not available uh, still in Massachusetts. And, you know, lots of people are, their only internet access is a mobile phone and, uh, you know, probably an older model mobile, mobile, mobile phone. And a lot of these people are not uh, sophisticated. I, I spent uh, some time today trying to tell an older relative of mine how to unlock their iPhone. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, it, those are real issues. Um, and I think with these, you know, that's what I like about this report is it at least says, let's stop and think about some of this stuff and, and uh, be cognizant of it as we go forward. Do any of you guys think that it's, um, that there should maybe be a platform specifically for these types of court proceedings and not everyone just using like Zoom uh, platforms? platform that's the one thing like I know we kind of had this sudden rush but it is kind of concerning like you have these serious life and death um events and they're through like a zoom platform and I know like they've worked on their encryption and everything like that but does anyone think that there maybe should be a platform specifically that maybe have the the data privacy or cybersecurity or protections built into it for these types of matters or litigation in general I think that would be fantastic. Unfortunately, I saw what the federal government did with PACER, uh, which is a perfectly yeah. fine system that costs, like, there are, like, there are Pentagon programs that blush when they look at what PACER costs. So, uh, I, I, I don't know. I like, hey, but yeah, there should be something. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there should be something, but then you get into this whole, you know, bloatware bureaucracy road of some company trying i mean look at the court systems now just a lot of the uh a lot of the systems that have been competing just to put court records online some of them are just so horrible and cost so much money and just you know some hacker over a weekend could design a better system than, than some of these things that are out there being sold commercially so i don't, I don't know how you how you get around uh all that, uh, and I and I, I do see Valerie Chan uh, saying there there are some systems out there that she mentions the V Testify one, which I've actually written about. I I, I actually that's a great system for depositions, uh, and and uh, it's not for court hearings per se, but it's great for depositions and uh, mediations and that kind of stuff. So there are systems being built as kind of more specialized and custom uses, but I do worry about. I mean, it would be great to standardize if you could standardize on some kind of an open source, uh, you know, uh, 
something that, that the courts are going to collaborate on. I just that's I, I think that's one of the things I like about what Utah is doing with their sandbox is they're kind of they're publishing everything um, so that so that um, others can build on it and uh, and improve on it. So I, I think if there is any one system, you know, that would be that would kind of satisfy Zach's issues too. If you're if you kind of start to move towards a best practice, but then continue your sandbox experimentation and improving, um, and let let everybody else have that opportunity to keep. Um, customizing for whatever their needs are. I mean, a lot of these are, you know, really different needs, different areas, different um, geographies, too. So, you know, it's not a one one size fits all system. Yeah. Um, who else? Uh, I know, Zach, you had uh, a story you wanted to bring yeah. up. You want to talk about that? Well, yeah, I mean, my we've talked about it a little bit in the past just the prevalence of data breaches but i did find it interesting the ruling in the big yahoo class action data breach where the settlement was accepted but the lawyers fees were not and the reasoning that judge co gave in that case was essentially that what the lawyers did wasn't novel um she had previously made a ruling in the anthem data breach case that uh, what the lawyers were doing was exceptional and they were justified in demanding high fees. But here she said that uh, a lot of the work had pretty much already been done, including in that Anthem case, and they weren't really blazing new ground. So the lawyers were asking for 30 million and she thought that was too high. Um, so for me, it's just kind of something to watch for with litigators because these big class action data breaches as they continue to happen, we're seen as kind of the next frontier, especially for plaintiffs who are expecting big returns on what was happening and that may not necessarily be the case. Okay, all right. So this is, given that this is a conversation in front of legal tech reporters, I feel comfortable with this uh, and the rest of you will uh, watching will, will hear what I mean. Um, the reason Judge Coe says that, you know, this was, She'd already done one case like this, and it's not really hard or novel research. Is because, as we all know, because we've seen the demos, every single legal research technology begins with, and so we can trace what judges think. Here, let's use an example out of the blue. Lucy Coe. Every single one of those demos. <laughs> so true. It is the easiest possible thing to know what she's thinking because it's every demo that they put into every bit of software. It's true. That, that is funny. It, sort of like whenever you get the uh, Microsoft demos, they always have the same uh, person yeah. with the same last name or something. Whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I don't think people who aren't legal tech folks would appreciate how funny that is. But every time I sit down and see a legal tech thing talk about a judge, they're like, oh, and uh, just out of the blue. <laughs> so we should make a Mount Rushmore of that yeah. and Ron Data for Discovery. Yes. Um, <laughs> what else do we have up there? I'm sure that we right. can up with a few others. Just <laughs> oh, the Enron data. That's so true. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, but I, I think that's an interesting story only because I, all, all, not only because of, but just because, I mean, I'm, I am all for, I'm all for contingency fees. I'm all for uh, lawyers taking cases on contingency fee basis. But in the class action world, these things are just, obscene sometimes. I mean, I, I, her, I think her, what, you know, the, the article you, you talked about, talked about the fact that she had like approved five lawyers in the case. And there were like 140 lawyers 
and there there had hardly really she said made it sound like there had hardly been you know much in the, in the way of pretrial discovery or motion practice or anything else in the case so here they were asking for you know 35 million dollars or something like that i think it was in attorney's fees yeah. uh you know and and you know that the individuals uh who the, the members of the class who were affected by this data breach are all going to get you know six months of of account watch or something out of it you know they're, they're not going to get anything so I, it's i i do feel like it's it, it's a system that's just is out of control and needs reform yeah although like it, I, i'm i'm the big class action defender around above the law and i'm like it, it depends on what the harm is and with things like data breaches if you view the harm as just what happened in the first data breach then yeah that they're gonna get a, you know, a bit of so six months of software and these other, these lawyers are going to make millions. But if you view what the class action did as make Yahoo care about data breaches going forward and prevent future people from getting screwed, then the lawyers probably do deserve more money than the individuals who were screwed in the first instance. And so like uh, balancing that out, and this is the argument I have all the time with the uh, anti-class action people uh, who troll me in my feed. Like it, if it depends on what the harm is, but a lot of times the proactive work that private litigation is able to do in a world where we don't have regulators anymore uh, is necessary. Like in a world where we had regulators, who cared about things, we could do this, but now it's up to the class action people and they got to get paid. Yeah, I, I agree. Where, Go ahead. Okay. I was just going to ask where lawyers have become just in the current climate in general, whether it is the breaches, the um, presidency, the, the different issues that are like, suddenly people are valuing lawyers because they're really taking a stand in defending our constitutional rights and doing things that matter. So, and I'm with you on the class action. I, I tend to think that they um, they serve an uh, important purpose. And even though a large number of people only had like $20 worth of damage at the end of the day, it makes a difference if someone it makes them stop this, you know, it makes them stop doing these things that screw over the little guy. I don't know. I think it's a no, good thing. I, I'm all for class. I didn't mean to suggest I'm against class actions. I am all for class actions. And I, you know, both, both in order to bring recovery to those who've been injured, and as you say, to help dissuade the, that kind of conduct going forward. But uh, I do feel that there needs to be some more rational way to figure out how to compensate attorneys in these cases because I don't think it's it, it makes sense to me right now. Maybe Bob Ambrosia gets a percentage of the recovery for every class. Of every then <laughs> now that would be logical. I I, I could go with that. Um, Nikki, did you have Nikki? You had you had Mine stories, but we've already you. talked about them because they weren't your stories. <laughs> right? Yeah, I took. I had one that was yours, Bob, and one that was Joe's, and then I threw mine in when we were talking about yours. So no, I don't have anything else to say. Whew. You guys are you're in luck. <laughs> all right, all right. Anything else anybody want to talk about? No. Any questions from our audience? No. All right. Good luck and to anybody taking the bar exam. We can call it a wrap for yeah. Good luck to bar exam. Who's still doing? Who's still doing a physical one? Uh, South Carolina. Uh, Twenty-three states are doing a physical states. one. Oh wow! 
Uh, Indiana, Indiana is going forward with their uh, online one. On, you know, New York's moving online, but in October, a lot of states are moving online in October. Indiana has an online one beginning on Tuesday, and as of 11 today, the software didn't work. So awesome. things are going to go awesome. great. Oh, great. Good. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everybody. And uh, we're going to be back here again next week. I am going to, for anybody in the audience, I, am, I've, I think I'm going to try and set this up from now on as a recurring webinar so you can register once, I think, and then be able to just kind of get a reminder and come back uh, week after week if you want to do that instead of making you have to remember to register every week. So we'll try and get that set up for next week. Uh, until then, everybody have a great weekend and a great uh, next week. See you around. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody.